Alert! The following is not part of our regularly scheduled program. Viewer discretion is advised, especially those sensitive to very bad singing. Bill. Yeah, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill, and this High Truth episode deserves a singing beginning, because SB 864 passed the Senate health winning. Fentanyl and other drug tests should not be living apart. Senate appropriation is next, I think they will have heart, and I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. California, SB 864, Tyler's Bill, just made its first hurdle through Senate Health with unanimous bipartisan support. This bill will require all hospitals in California to include fentanyl in urine drug screens. If a test is ordered for cocaine or meth, why would it not include fentanyl? If hospitals adapted to COVID testing, why are they not adapting to the fentanyl crisis that is taking more young lives than COVID? This is my very first bill that I helped author, sponsor, and work through the legislative process, which is why I'm singing. And now back to our regular High Truths program. Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor, Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, High Truth listeners. What an absolute joy to join you in conversation on drugs and addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. I listen to various podcasts, and I want to share some Talmudic wisdom from a podcast called Take One, Daf Yomi. The podcast summarizes one page of Talmud every day. And a little background, 
The Talmud is a collection of rabbinic writings dating back to the 3rd and 6th century, over 1,500 years ago. The Talmud has 2,711 pages. And so there is a worldwide movement to read one page of Talmud every day for a cycle of seven and a half years. At that time, we complete the cycle and have a celebration. That movement is called Daf Yomi. Daf Yomi is translated to daily page in Hebrew. So I'm in the middle of that seven and a half year challenge. But please, I am very far away from being a Talmudic scholar. In fact, I call myself a Daf for dummy uh, learner. And uh, that's about the level of Talmud I have. During the Take One podcast for the Talmud page called Moed Katan 14, the host, Leah Leibowitz, invited Rabbi Dovid Bashevkin to explain the Talmud's perspective on what is the purpose of prison. The Talmudic rabbis state, there is no greater prison than the womb of a mother. What? A womb as a prison? I'm not sure my pregnant daughter-in-law would like that analogy. I'll have to ask her. But picture a growing fetus, a future cute little cuddly innocent little baby trapped in a jail of the uterus. What were those ancient rabbis thinking? Rabbi Davi Bashevkin explains that the rabbi's view of prison is not what we think of today, a place where we throw away people and forget about them. Instead, the Talmud prison is a place where people are locked away for a purpose of keeping them safe and allowing nourishment, like the growing fetus, a place where people are not quite ready to live in society because they need to learn, they need to learn responsibility for their behavior, pay their dues, learn skills, gain tools, and be nourished before they're ready to live outside and independently. The Talmud view of prison is a collective societal womb so people can, in the future, contribute to society. It's interesting to compare our current view of prison reform, criminal justice, and how the Talmudic scholars viewed prison. I want to say thank you to Leah Leibovich and Rabbi Bashevkin for Take One Daf Yomi. I believe that for some people, not most people, but for a few, jail is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for detoxification, gaining your brain back, and motivation for change and treatment of addiction. It's an opportunity to nourish through treatment and to save a life. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Amy Hendel, and I am the Drug Demand Reduction Coordinator for the San Diego and Imperial County Haida. First and foremost, I would like to thank Ronit for the opportunity to participate in the High Truths podcast and thank her for her endless work and dedication to this field. We couldn't do what we do without you, and it is an honor and privilege to call you a friend and colleague. Here at the Haida, we truly believe that partnership is key and we value the ability and opportunity to merge public health and public safety together in everything that we do because we truly understand that that is the only way we are going to overcome or at least make an impact on this epidemic. We are so honored to be working on the CDC's overdose response strategy here in San Diego and we're recently able to onboard our drug intelligence officer in August of 2021 and look forward to adding our public health analyst in April of 2022. My question for you today is, in general, 
Many times, society views law enforcement with suspicion. And unfortunately, when we want to come in and do prevention work and help support public health, those sentiments are relayed to us. And um, oftentimes, partnerships are not forged. Um, As I mentioned, lots of suspicion comes along with it. And it can be very discouraging. I was wondering if other areas have encountered this, and if so, how have they been able to overcome these barriers? Thank you, Amy, for your question and the amazing work you do for Haida and prevention. You have been my friend for a long time and confident on my way to the journey to the White House. I thank you for that as well. To answer your question, your very important question, I invited a Haida director who is an expert in collaboration across various specialties and agencies and works closely with the CDC overdose response strategy, Chauncey Parker. Chauncey Parker is director of the New York, New Jersey Haida, high intensity drug trafficking area. He also serves as deputy commissioner for the community partnerships in the New York City Police Department. Mr. Parker has an extensive career in criminal justice and is a graduate of Duke University School of Law. You can find Chauncey Parker's bio on the High Truth show notes. Chauncey Parker, welcome to High Truths. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Dr. Love. You know, I'm real excited about this conversation um, and uh, your long history with law enforcement and partnership with public health, really innovations of what you do in New York that's really spread throughout our nation. Tell us about yourself and how you became involved with law enforcement and the issue of drugs and collaborations. Uh, well, I've worked in uh, criminal justice for 35 years. I started as a, a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office and then um, uh, moved from there to, a, to the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in Manhattan and the Southern District of New York, worked there for 10 years. And I um, had a role as the head of criminal justice for the state of New York went back to the Manhattan DA's office, and now I'm currently also a deputy commissioner in the NYPD. So I've sort of done these different jobs, but one steady stream through all of it has been serving as the HIDA director for New York, New Jersey, uh, which is a job I've loved since the 1990s. And I think um, what, I've, what I've learned, I get really from watching the NYPD in particular in the, in the 1990s and watching Comstock, where we had a city it was really over, overwhelmed by violent crime and some feeling of hopelessness, I guess. And this crime strategist named Jack Maple came in and said, you know, it's really very clear. If you can, you really have to set a North Star. What is the goal? And up to that point, in some sense, the goal for police was, was arresting people. And that, because what else would you measure? And he said, no, the goal of policing is to reduce crime and created a whole system called CompStat around that, that North Star. And that really has led, that, that in particular led me in my career, when we, we think about public health and we think about the challenges um, with overdoses is really what, when we think about drug policy, what is our goal? And our goal is not to seize kilos or to, or to make a link to treatment or to do any, those are all part of our strategy. Our, our, our goal, our North Star is to reduce overdoses and save lives. And, I, and, I, and, and we should be ideologically agnostic about how we get there, like we are you know, like public health is like a doctor is in the emergency room. We should just be, and so we should be open to any strategies, whether it's medication-assisted treatment, whether it's naloxone, whether it's public health, public safety partnerships, whatever reduces overdoses and save lives. That's really been kind of a guiding um, truth for me. 
I love that North Star approach. Um, and you said director of Haida. Um, several years ago, I was looking for money to do a project in the emergency department, safe prescribing, and I needed money to, um, you know, just to put a bunch of brochures out to all our emergency departments. And I found it through Haida, and I thought, who are these people, and why do a bunch of law enforcement officers want to give money to an ER doc? Um, can you tell us what's what is Haida? Haida is. Uh, it started in the late 1980s. Um, and it was it's a con when they created a drug czar's office or an office of national drug control policy congress um at the time i think president bush um but it but it the, the president together with congress has the authority to designate areas of the country uh, as a high intensity drug trafficking area or haida and uh, it started with five and now there are 33 and it's the entire country and um, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, it, it covers, it covers uh, all, everything. Um, but what I think, what Haida is, we get, I'll tell you about our Haida, and it's the same whether it's that or San Diego, You're, we were given um, funding, and our job with that funding is not to become an agency because we have enough agencies. The job of that funding, our role in that funding is to invest in partnerships. Originally, it was invest in partnerships to attack drug trafficking, but now it's to invest in partnerships that build safe and healthy communities. So your grant that you looked at would fit right in it. You know, when we started, it was just, we just invested in these drug task forces, which were critically important. But now as you fast forward, we're able to, um, um, to invest in partnerships, whether it's a public health, public safety partnership to reduce overdose deaths, whether it's a partnership to do drug prevention efforts, a, a partnership to do overdose fatality reviews, a partnership to fund you know, get naloxone in the hands of first responders. It really is anything that will will um, will support that. But that's what we really use this investment fund for. And tops, and, and in addition to all sorts of other enforcement initiatives, drug trafficking, intelligence sharing, money laundering initiatives. But um, it's re really over the last ten years has expanded to include drug prevention and drug treatment. Right. And so Haida is under the Office of National Drug Control Policy. My previous. Um, uh, employer when I was chief medical officer. And I think people would be really surprised to hear that law enforcement is really investing in, in prevention. And, and one of that partnership is something that you've been working on for some time along with the CDC, like um, working on the opioid response strategy. And I don't think most people are aware or they, they would like raise their eyebrows to hear that the CDC is working with law enforcement in a strong partnership such as uh, the opioid response strategy um, to work on the issue of uh, drug addiction and deaths and overdoses. Well, I'll tell you how that started, um, or one of the ways it started is our good friend Rita Noonan from the CDC tells this story and it's really about the importance of data sharing and the importance of um, different agency putting their pieces of the puzzle together um, to have a fuller picture of the challenge or the North Star of what we're trying to accomplish. So as Rita tells the story, um, she this is when fentanyl was just starting to come onto the horizon. I think it maybe was 2015, but she was looking at the, um, she was able to work, DEA was sharing the fentanyl seizures, and I think it was in Ohio, and it was a graph and you could see the fentanyl in the drug supply kind of going up in, a, in a, an alarming rate um, over a period of a year or so. And then Rita had the um, overdose fatality rates in Ohio and saw that the line for overdose fatalities hugged very, very closely to that same line. And what her point was how important drug seizure data is to public health 
officials and first responders on the ground in terms of their strategies and that this sharing of information was so is so important. So the overdose response strategy actually started as the heroin response strategy. It was in the Northeast and it was a bunch of HIDA, it was five HIDA directors who got together and said, let's see if we can work together to create a partnership with public health to reduce overdoses from heroin. That um, then um, expanded into the opioid response strategy because we saw fentanyl into the, in the marketplace. And now it's called the overdose response strategy because with methamphetamine and cocaine and fentanyl and every, everything, it's now, and it's now a national initiative. But the essence of it is ONDCP and CDC have partnered together to fund a public health, public safety partnership. And the cornerstone of that partnership is a drug intelligence officer, an experienced law enforcement officer in every state who has a partner who is a public health analyst. And they work together to, to, to add value to that state's strategy to reduce overdose deaths. It could be um, a data sharing partnership in that state where law enforcement lab data is now shared with, with the health officials so they can do just what Rita was saying was so important. It could be um, that we want to, that there are key um, strategies like making sure that well, naloxone is in the hands of every first responder so that we can save lives. But it's, it's a two person team, public health, public safety, side by side that started, you know, it started in just a couple of states and now it's, now it's nationwide. And it's, and I think importantly, it's also equally funded by ONDCP and CDC. There may be other examples of this, but I've never seen two agencies, independent agencies, particularly public health and public health, public safety, putting their money together for a common cause. It's usually within one big department. And it's really, a, I think a, a lot of our leader, Shannon Kelly, who is the national leader of the HIDA program, and Rita Noonan, who's the leader for, on behalf of CDC, really said how much stronger we are if we work together and pool, pool our resources for a national strategy. I, I absolutely love it. And I love the fact that the CDC, the agency that tells us to you know put on masks and get vaccinated is also investing in a program that fosters this collaboration between law enforcement and the medical community. Um, in San Diego, I chair a task force called Credo, Community Response to Drug Overdoses. It, it's, uh, it mimics a program that we started that didn't kind of go off while I was at ONDCP, but it does the same thing. And each month, we share the data from different um, aspects of the drug problem. And just like you said, just what you and Rita did, you know, if the, the sheriff's department has one piece of data, the medical examiner has another piece of data, EMS and hospitals have another piece, and, and then we have our Team 10 um, overdose response team. And then together we could really have a better grasp of, of like what I need to do as a doctor and what law enforcement needs to do and what prevention where prevention needs to be deployed. So it sounds like the same, really same principle as I absolutely love that. Yeah, and definitely. I would just, I would just say, Dr. Love, one of the things um, that informs that for me is that we started in New York City um, before the overdose response strategy, an initiative called RxStat. But the principle is the same. It, ComStat is the North Star is to reduce crime. RxStat, the North Star is to reduce overdoses and save lives. But I just give you an example of one of the data sets or the power of partnership is um, it's very difficult because overdose data is so, it, it can be very late and very general when it comes through for lots of reasons, mm -hmm. but it could be a year later that you find, you know, that you get the data and it could be by zip code. And particularly in a police, the police department shifted gears and said, we want to lock arms with you public health to reduce overdoses, but we're used to getting data daily. 
and then deploying strategies based on that data. And so they, together with, with our city health partners, with our medical examiner in particular, um, at one of our meetings, the medical examiner said, you know, I don't know if this is helpful, but I, I think I could tell you when, a, when, when, a, when someone who's passed away comes into the, into the city morgue, I can tell you that day, with, I believe with 90% accuracy that it's an overdose. I know that based on the circumstances, either circumstances of death, paraphernalia that's at the scene, talking to loved ones who were there. But I think with it, and so they created a, we tried this and they created a surveillance system. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So now New York City has a surveillance system with ni about 90% accuracy that within 48 hours, information is generated that's very, very specific about a presumed overdose that can then drive strategy, most importantly in the hands of our, of our public health partners. I think a Amy Hendel, who uh, called into the show with a question, would be very uh, envious of that. Um, uh, she is a part of our San Diego Imperial, Haida, and um, notices that there are some barriers and suspicions uh, that come up when law enforcement and public health work together. Um, it's like, wait, why, why are you tracking this? Are you just trying to arrest people? Have, have you experienced that type of suspicion when it comes to working together between the medical and law enforcement community? I think there can always be suspicion when, you know, any agencies work together or there can be misunderstandings um, because we don't naturally do it. I mean, it's unnatural that we don't do it, mm -hmm. but I think in all of government, it's, it's sort of more the exception that you have everybody at the table looking at the same map at the same time from many different agencies. I think that's gotta be the model, but we're not there yet in anything. I don't think that we do in government really, um, but it's what I try to push it because I think of the power of partnership. But specifically to answer your question, I think there, you know, when we started there, there was a, um, it was really two different worlds trying to talk to each other, law enforcement and public health. I think the public health thought that really what you wanna do is you wanna go arrest people and law enforcement can't believe that you're supporting people who are doing something that's illegal. Or so, you know, I'm just saying in the most general terms. Mm -hmm. But I think what it would always what will bring people together, whether it's for this or we're working on a gun violence partnership, um, and with a, a, you know another kind of with different agencies and another part of our program, it's coming up with what's your north. The first part of your conversation must be what's your north star, and Rita talks about this all the time as well as, uh, and and frankly Jim Carroll, who I know you work for, was a, I thought he was exceptional, and he said in his. You know, and it's the original, you know, I think it's first first mission statement is mm -hmm. the goal of the federal government of, of our drug policy is to is to save lives. So Saving I think lives. what is Every right, meeting. Like, but I think if we but it's I mean, I guess it can be overly seems overly simple, but I don't think we do it enough. I think we launch strategies without agreeing on a North Star. But if we agree on a North Star, so um, to Amy, you know, with with with, with you know, my advice wherever we are is to say what's if, if the goal is we start the meeting, we start the partnership by saying the people at this table are North Stars to reduce overdoses and save lives. People don't have to be at that. That's not your mission. That's not your North Star, but that is law enforcement's North Star. That is mm -hmm. the medical examiner. That is public health. That is the treatment partners. That is our harm. We share that, but let's put that right center, center that that's our North Stars to reduce overdoses and save lives. And then I think secondly, we have to be ideologically agnostic about how we get there. We may have, you know, the first time somebody, I don't know, talks about needle exchange or naloxone, you know, let's say naloxone. It was a, there was a paradigm shift where people are saying, is that really the role of law enforcement to provide naloxone? And then once they, you know, once they 
or which the, the, the it's people realize it's an evidence-based practice obvious that, that saves lives certainly in that moment that people should be doing it same thing with medication assisted treatment how do i you, doctors like you are going to tell us what the evidence is a buprenorphine is, a, is an evidence-based strategy to help people with a substance use disorder it really doesn't matter anything other than we have to be ideologically agnostic and follow your lead um, so I think those two are the key. I think those are the two key things. And then I think the third is that people have to see value at that table. They have to see results. They have to see that it's not just we're just talking, but we have to accomplish that we were able to share, share lab data with our health partners. And they were able to take that data and as a result of it, be able to deploy first responders to warn about fentanyl in the drug supply earlier than, than too late. I think one of the, the places we've seen um, uh, suspicion is with uh, tracking, which is unusual because epidemiologically, that's what public health does. We've done that for sexually transmitted diseases. Everybody knows about tracking and tracing for COVID. And we wanted to apply the same type of infectious disease principles for overdoses. And one of those tools was ODMAP. Um, I don't know if you do you use that in, in New York. We do. We do. Yeah. I think so, we use every, it's around the country. <laughs> it's around the country, but yet we're having a, trouble with that in California because they hear, oh, zip code data, you know, um, are, are you going to go to, is law, it's a law enforcement tool. So why does law enforcement w want to um, go and find people and arrest them in those zip codes? And the very, that ruffles people's feather. And, and it's been an obstacle for implementing ODMAP in, in California. I'm wondering how you were, you have the same issues about, um, you know, criminal justice reforms and and how, do you, how are you able to get people to see that ODMAP is a public health tool used for public health, even though um, the technology came from law enforcement? Well, I think the best way to do that is to have public health leaders um, talk about how helpful it is for the work they do. I don't think public health partners and harm reduction partners hearing law enforcement say it's a really important tool. First of all, it's not our expertise. We don't have a, know anything close to what public health leaders, but you and others are, we, this was implemented, you know, we, we use it in particular in Erie County, which is where, you know, in Buffalo in New York state mm -hmm. and to have our public health, you know, to have the Erie County health commissioner say, this is a really vital tool and is um, to saving lives is that's what you need. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, and then, and then I think it's also explained, well, how do they use it? And they're able to use it by having one follow the, get the data goes particularly to our public health partners. We follow the lead of our public health partners. Law enforcement is not using it as a law enforcement tool. They're using it as a way to get data to public health partners more quickly. But for example, what they do in Erie County is to be able to have that information that gets to the health department that day. And then they're able to um, have a harm, a harm reduction partner reach out to that person, not with law enforcement, unless they want law enforcement to be there, but we'll follow their lead. And they find, and I think they find it very, very helpful. I think everywhere you go, when we look, I, I just think the validators are the public health leaders. So somebody in San Diego, if they're questioning it, um, they should go to talk to the, the health commissioner in, in areas where um, they say it's very helpful. Talk to the CDC, which I believe is, is one of the investors in it now. Um, I would also say what I think is so interesting about ODMAP and what I love about the HIDA program and the way Shannon Kelly runs it and um, 
is the power of imagination. Rodi Map was not something that was in the uh, Haida toolkit. It was Tom Carr, the Washington and Baltimore Haida director, who was trying to figure out a way how to get um, drug overdose, presumed drug overdose information to health partners more quickly um, than a year later in a, in a very general way. And um, he, I think he, it was a $5,000 investment in a 30-day timeline. He developed this app called Modi OD Map. Amazing. Now it's in some sense, I think, changed the, changed the world of, of, of drug use surveillance. And it's a health, it's not a law enforcement tool. It's a public health tool. And but I think people, that that's what they need to hear to, is that it's a public yeah. health tour. And somehow there, there's a like because of who developed it. But you're right. I mean, we we do that for COVID. Why would we not do that for overdoses? It's a, also a public health problem. And can I just add, I just think it's also yeah. the challenge that we have in all sorts of areas. We have this, uh, but, but say in public health, it's the balance between security or safety or health and privacy. And so it's a balance. So if law enforcement... Yeah. Or a first responder, if somebody see you know encounter somebody who had a non-fatal overdose, this is a challenge that I have trouble grappling with. Is the police respond to somebody who has an overdose? They bring them back to life with naloxone. They bring them to the emergency room. We know. At first, I thought, well, I guess they'll never overdose. This is how little I knew. I guess that's the end of it because they came so close to a near-death experience. We probably, the, the, we probably, that would, I'm really surprised that anybody would ever use drugs ever again. This is the gap in my knowledge, which, but I'm a good listener <laughs> and a good student. So now I can, I understand a lot more about substance use disorder and the, ch the tr tremendous challenges. But my point is somebody has a non-fatal overdose. So we know, and they, and they're brought back to life with naloxone. They're in the emergency room. And then three hours later, law enforcement responds to the, to another overdose. I think it's a challenge. It's a question we have to ask as a as a country and as a community. I understand the privacy side, but somebody should know. The chances are very, very high that the person who has a non-fatal overdose, who's brought back to life, is going to overdose again. And it's also high that they could die from an overdose. Are we doing everything possible? I know it would compromise privacy, and law enforcement should have nothing to do with it. But can we have public health have all that information? The hospital to the treatment provider to the harm reduction, some way to make sure that we're providing the most um, comprehensive but, care. But, to that but I think it goes even beyond that. And I, I give a case of a, a patient came to the emergency department. It was a John Doe who overdosed. And I did my thing, put them on the ventilator, you know, control their blood pressure, send them to the ICU. And I could have been done and moved on to the next patient like, you know, most of us do in the emergency department. But I was thinking, you know. If that was a, a Shigella diarrhea from a certain restaurant, I would want to do some contact tracing, saying, well, who else ate that bad lettuce that got yeah. these people sick, right? And and I, I did that. I, I called our overdose team on, that, on this um, patient, and they were able to um, get his name, find his family who was frantically looking for him, go to the scene, do what they call a knock and talk, that's your language, um, and find out that there are several other people who took the same pills and they were having chest pain and brought them to the hospital and they confiscated those deadly pills. And instead of saving one life, I, you know, who knows how many were saved by, by that contact tracing type of experience. You know, I agree. And I think that when I say that we need to be agnostically ideological, I also yeah. think public health needs to, too. I think law enforcement, I think it's all of us, have to figure out if the North Star is to reduce overdoses and save lives, we should be doing everything we possibly can to do that. Yeah. And I it, think we miss opportunities sometimes. 
Sometimes, but I, but but that that energy, and you're doing it in your community, and we're slowly inching away in our community. I think more of these. I, I'm just so thankful, really, to to Haida and CDC for this for this partnership. I think this is this is a, the the answer, especially at a time when we know our country is so divided. This is a way, yeah. an example. I mean, we need to come together. There's one topic that we can get together with and agree on. I think it would be the issue of overdoses. Yeah, and I think with the height, I mean, you have a very, you have a great height director, Dave King. I mean, it's really around, and he's an example, Tom Carr. I mean, yeah, I can mention that there's so many, but Dave is an example. Just people who are imaginative, right? He's doing prevention work. He's doing phenomenally important enforcement work um, and everything in between. Um, and I think that that's one of the, I think that's what I love about the Haida program. And it's also what, what just kind of to your point about where we are, we're so divided. We have to seize this moment, find the common ground or find the common North Star and build these partnerships. Saving lives. And so you're doing something um, new, interesting. Some actually, I shouldn't even bring this up after I saying, oh, this brings us together because this is actually something that maybe brings us apart. But um, these consumption sites, are you in, involved that, that that New York is trying out? Uh, I'm not involved in it. I think um, they're they're called in New York New York City. They're called overdose prevention centers, mm -hmm. which I think to start with, I think that's the right name for it. Um, is that they're overdose prevention centers? Mm -hmm. um, they're not consumption sites. They're not safe injection sites. It is you know the, it's, this is outside of my um, the world that I'm involved in. But uh, but the way I look at it is that I think that. They need to be considered to be overdose prevention centers. They need to be held, that we need to follow the lead of public health. It's part of a strategy that health, our health leaders are saying this is part of a strategy to reduce overdoses and save lives. Their efforts, as I understand it, when people um, seek help, they're coming in and they're offered services. They could, could be what they come there is not to um, use drugs. They come there to be connected with medication assisted treatment. They could be there for, to get other kind of health services or mental health services. So I don't, I think is I do think language matters. And so I think that the idea that they're the North Star, if those centers work the way they're designed to work, should be to, uh, they should be overdose prevention centers um, as all part of a strategy to, to save lives. But people go there to use drugs and have to be supervised and have somebody give them naloxone if they overdose? That's the way they're set up. I. I um, you know, I, I'm not. We're we're not invited. We're not involved in it. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the way that they are set up, and I think it's intentionally that it's a public health initiative, both yeah. by the city and the state. Um, and I, and and I hope it's you know that what we're hoping is that you know I think that they're, they're designed to be something that that saves lives. And I guess the data will speak for it itself. I think you have to measure the right data. If you just look at data in that site or in that area. Of of uh, of overdoses, you know, you may find a decrease, but you'll have to look at that whole state, that whole county, and see if that really makes any dent. Um, yeah, in, I think in it's overdoses. kind of. I mean, my personal view of it is, there's some areas like something. There, public health. There are people who are professionals in public health, and they should be respond. They should be held responsible for achieving the north star that they set. Um, but they're the ones who are responsible for, for finding, designing, and implementing evidence-based strategies. I think when people first suggested um, syringe exchange, I think it might have been illegal. Um, and now it's a best practice in many parts of the country and in many parts of the world. It's yeah. a best practice for saving lives. I think when someone first suggested naloxone, 
um, people thought that that wasn't a good idea and now it's a best practice and it's saving lives. I don't know with overdose prevention centers what the evidence will be, but I do think this is a public health initiative and uh, it has to be measured by, you know, through that lens. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I, I, um, I have trouble with it to, to be honest. I, I don't know if it meets people where they are. People use drugs. It's, it's tell them come here to use drugs instead of, you know, wherever people use drugs. I think it'd be, you know, easier to do, like I call it the scuba diver method. Just don't use alone, use with a partner or other people around you. Um, and meeting people where they are instead of asking people to come to this center. And the other frustration I have as an emergency physician, I send home people every day and it really breaks my heart. People who want to get sober, want to get treatment, and there's no place for me to send them. And that we're investing in places to use safely instead of investing more for people who want to get help and want to, they need a safe, you know, a sober center rather than using center. Um, and then we don't have that in our communities. You know, I find that frustrating. And again, it's not my expertise, but I, <laughs> what I, but what I hear from people, I don't know if this is your, your view as well, but I, I hear in particular, just the importance of connecting people to medication assisted treatment. Right. And, the, and, that, we, and I don't know where they where they do that and how they do it. But that seems to be the big gap. It is is to that 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 gives people the the possible footing um, to to um, to recovery or to you know to getting on that path forward. Yeah, uh, and that's interesting. I'd like to learn uh, more about that. Like you say, you know, all options on the table, but also they have to make sense, and you have to think about where you're investing. Um, tell us more about New York. How has the pandemic affected the the drug crisis, and what are you, what's what's your what are you seeing more methamphetamines, fentanyl, marijuana? Uh, well, the overdoses are, are higher than they have ever been. The overdose deaths, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's probably I guess that's across the, across the country. Um, and I can I look to you, Dr. Lev, and others who are the experts, but I do believe this, you know, it seems to me like one of the most devastating parts of the of the pandemic is the breakdown of connections and that human beings need to see each other and be with each other. Um, you know, social infrastructure needs to be built. So I don't know whether that's part of the cause, but it's certainly um, affecting all of us. What we see in the, in the drug supply in New York City is fentanyl is everywhere. Fentanyl is in um, you know, our main drugs are cocaine and, and, uh, and hair, you know, heroin, sometimes now exclusively fentanyl, but fentanyl is, um, is everywhere in, in the marketplace. I think there's more of, um, of, um, the drug dealers are now working or getting into the pill, you know, turning it into pills. It's a more efficient way to, to sell drugs. And so counterfeit pills, very, very dangerous that people crush them. They don't know what's in them, but that, tends to be uh, in the marketplace, but we're just, it's fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. Um, and I believe that's what we see everywhere. I have an interesting project we're doing with the DEA and with the CDC um, and, uh, and, our, and our partners called, um, called Narconomics, but it is, um, is trying to study the business model. We, we have five cities and one of them is New York City, is to, pick, is to study the business model of a drug, organiz- drug trafficking organization uh, whether it's the same, you know, Starbucks, um, uh, shoe store, anybody, whatever they are, everybody has a business model. What are the vulnerabilities? If you really understood the business, you'd understand the vulnerabilities. And what we're trying to do is understand the vulnerabilities of um, drug trafficking organizations to see um, 
where we could we we could impact their business and hopefully um, as a as a goal of reducing crime and reducing overdose deaths. I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. And to think of that CDC is interested in such a well, they're not only interested. It's, it's CDC. That's awesome. Our, yeah, CDC is our partner, and a lot of it is heavy on research and bringing in these really very very bright, smart, long time um, policy experts to look at it. But it is kind of to, again to put we we think the way we at least I think the way I think because I've been doing it for thirty five years. I need somebody outside to. Um, outside of my thinking to challenge that thinking and think, you know, I never really thought of it as a business, strictly as a business. Mm -hmm. I sort of thought of it more of as a criminal organization, but it's a business to the drug dealer. Yeah. That's all they think about. It's a business. And so if you want to hurt that business, how would you hurt that business? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's very that's cool. Our, that's our North star for narconomics. That is very <laughs> and, cool. Uh, yeah. And see, and Rita, CDC, DEA, um, and our state and local partners, we're all we're all working on it together. That's very cool. Any what else are some of the CDC, uh, HIDA, ORS um, projects that that we would I mean, want to well, emulate? One of the, <laughs> well, one of the things that CDC has done is, um, I mean, they put a lot of funding back. They formed this partnership with HIDA um, on lots of different. The ORS is the is the cornerstone, so to speak, of it. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that they've done is also they have a, it's a, a grant of two or three million dollars that's kind of an innovations grant that is called Kukli and it's really looking at um, community oriented um, uh, innovative ideas to reduce overdoses and save lives but it's outside of the ORS and it opens the, the marketplaces the, the country anywhere any 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 local town city state they can they can apply. Um, to come up with what's, what's the big idea, so to speak. It's kind of an innovation laboratory. And so that's something that uh, is, is funded by CDC in partnership with HIDA, but, but the funding of it comes from CDC to invest in these public safety, public health partnerships. Wow, fascinating. And, and any projects that you're aware of that you could share that, that came out of that? Uh, I mean, I think, I, I think it's interesting because some of the innovative projects would be something like that because it's been going on for four years. It could be something like, well, we should be working on having medication-assisted treatment available in jails. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be working on having naloxone in the hands of law enforcement. And then you look back, and now we're four years later, and that's no longer innovative. Right. Hey, four that's years old, ago, that's old. That's old uh... Yeah, but four years ago, it was innovative. That yeah. was sort of a, that was an innovative idea. So I think they're they're just um, you know they, there's one that we 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 do in New York City, um, which is um, from our RX stat, uh, the medical examiner does get these um, the fatal overdoses, and what we're finding, and this is what again our public health experts tell us, is not just the person who overdosed and died, and that's a tragedy, but people who are in that person's network are also very vulnerable. Like it's, there can be a high likelihood that the girlfriend or boyfriend, yeah, and we weren't, but we were, but from a medical examiner's office, they're focused on this person died and that was really the end of it mm -hmm. and in terms of their work. And so the medical examiner said that what we want to do is to hire um, navigators and um, who can work, we, we will do um, basically 360 interviews with the, with the family and friends of the person who overdosed. It's a public, it's purely public health. And to find out one, the trajectory of the life of Chauncey who overdosed with the idea of seeing are there any, were there any points along his life that we could have seen, we, maybe it was a turning point and if we had done something different, 
you know, they went into treatment, but they didn't have medication assisted treatment. Um, they, you know, they had um, trauma and it was untreated trauma. And that led, you know, it led to uh, 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 substance use of uh, disorder. Um, but a second part of it is who are the people in that network that are close to that person? And then this team from the medical examiner reaches out to those people and starts to, and are you okay? And do you, are you involved in, in using drugs? And can we connect you to medication assisted treatment? That was something that one of the, one of these investments was creative idea. And now the newest thing is that they're, now they're being, there is the evaluation cost of it, but it was just a couple of, of these navigators, but it could be a best practice um, of finding vulnerable people that we can, I, we can help. I just, I just love that idea. It's contact tracing. And so, Okay, after this program, you're going to have to connect me with who in the medical examiner is doing it, and I think we should be copying that. I think years ago, um, we had an innovation in San Diego where we sent letters, um, just educational letters to doctors who prescribe to people who died, because they I know that they had no idea, because I, 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 there were like 800 names of doctors, and they were my friends, and they were good doctors, but and I know that they had no idea that they that this happened from their prescription. So we sent educational letters, and then we studied that. We showed that people who got such a letter prescribed less and had less new starts. Um, and then... Uh, New York was, uh, you know, public health called us and said, hey, this is a good idea. We want to copy and we shared our resources. So now I want to copy you guys. Because well, that's an example. I mean, that was the, that is amazing. also the power of partnership because that's Dr. Jason Graham. He's the chief medical examiner for New York City. And he partners with Alan Clear from the New York State Department of Health. They received HIDA funding for this project. They received CDC funding for the project. And they just received a DOJ uh, grant. For the project so it's really imagine if we all work together what we could accomplish wow wow i love that idea that's that's exactly what i talk about and i think that that's i call it contact tracing for overdoses yeah. but i don't know what you guys call it well we're going to call it contract tra contact tracing from now on <laughs> like, <they're better. laughs> like we do contact tracing for covid and i don't know what that's gotten us but yeah. i think if we contact trace we do it's it's the same infectious disease model if somebody has um you know gonorrhea chlamydia public health calls and and traces and treats other partners and encourage us to do treatment if i give you know antibiotics to somebody with syphilis i also would give it to with even out an, an appointment um give you know a prescription to that partner why would i not do the same thing with overdoses if somebody is at risk, then I should be giving the whole family naloxone prescriptions. And, and for every overdose, there are several people at risk. I just love what you guys are doing. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, so that, that's amazing. And we, we talked about, you know, what's happening in New York as far as what type of drugs you mentioned. And, and are you seeing the connection also with homelessness and increased and crime? Well... Um, there is, or are you sending all your homeless to California? <laughs> no, we have, we have plenty of people who are homeless. Okay. Um, I think the biggest overlap, I mean, I think the fundamental challenge is the people who are with homelessness are people who are, um, within mental health and providing, you know, the mental health services. Um, I think that the substance, substance use disorder and what is, and when we're having, you know, we obviously have a challenge with, with that and also the people people um, having overdoses from that. But I think the core, the core of it is, is, is uh, mental is making sure that we provide exceptional mental health services. And for us here in New York city, it's also housing. What I hear from this, again, not my expertise, but what I, but I listen to, I listen well, 
Um, and that's what people, the experts say is really, it starts with supportive housing. They gotta have, which is, you know, sort of, I guess, self-evident now that I think about it, but they gotta be supportive housing. And then there gotta be, you know, really good services, particularly for mental health. And then that, and then with the, the addiction side that then we kind of know strategies, whether it's medication assisted treatment seems to be the number one path. Um, but it's, but I think the core of it is, it are the mental health challenges. You, you do listen well. I can I can tell that that you've absorbed the the, the language and and everything else about it. That's awesome. Um, I shared at the intro to this uh, episode at, to, with our high truth listeners some interesting Talmudic uh, wisdom that says that prison and jail is analogous to the womb, um, and in protecting and nourishing a fetus. Uh, that's not yet ready to face the world, that that um, jail for the, our Talmudic uh, rabbis of the time uh, was the same thing, to put people in there so they could be nourished and learn and gain tools in order to face the outside world. What do you think of that concept of a jail as a place where people can detoxify from drug, get their brain back, and learn some skills to help them get back into society? Um. I thought it was fascinating that the rabbis talk I mean, about I, jail in the womb. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think of this from a policing perspective and from a my my career may, mostly as a prosecutor, and I think of this as government. I think the number most important responsibility of government is to keep people safe. I think that we we came from a state of nature, you know, it's, um, where it's chaos, and we've given up certain rights. Not my idea, it's Bakaria's idea, but. We gave certain rights to the state and we gave it to them to protect us. But with the with our contract is protect us with the with the least amount of force necessary, with the lightest touch possible. And so I look at it maybe from a from another perspective. I think that we need to keep people safe in whatever we do, and that's safe from from violence, that's safe from having our property taken from, but we need to the, the state, so to speak, needs to keep us safe. But we really need to have evidence-based strategies to make sure that we're not using more force than is necessary to do it, um, or less force. And we end up having, having, which in my view, I think where we are in New York City right now is we have two, we have less force than people, and it's and the consequences that um, a lot of people are suffering, particularly from gun violence um, and vulnerable. And we need to, we need to figure out this balance. But most of all, we have to have the responsibility of keeping people safe. As far as, and and I think that means. For some number of people, they need to go to prison, and they need to go to prison. And I think how how long they go to prison should be thought through, and it should be evidence based. Some people, it should be for the rest of their life. Some people, it should be for a day. Some people, it should be for a year. Whatever it is, but I think in terms of your question about prisons and jails, is if they're wombs or whatever. But I I, I think it's when we do, if we are going to take away somebody's liberty, then we have a responsibility to do everything we can to make sure that when they come back, there's less of a chance, they're stronger, and there's less of a chance that they're gonna commit another crime when they leave. And so we gotta figure out whatever we can do in that time, not just warehouse them, we gotta make sure whether we could, if they have a substance use disorder is to get them on the path where they they get their, their life back in that way. That they, um, if they, um, they, they need skills, that they can be self-sufficient as much as possible, then they have that. But I don't think 
I think I guess I do agree that there are wombs. If it's wombs, if it's a case where there's a regeneration, and that you and that we're we're doing something the opposite of warehousing, we're actually the north star for that is when is to have as few people leave prison ever come back to prison. That should be our north star, and we should be held accountable to it. And we should have evidence based strategies to get to get there. Yeah, I I I love that. That's your north star. I think I heard you saying at the beginning is um, is keeping people safe, right? Yeah. And then, and then accountable, like, are they coming back and repeating climbs? And I don't know, that's your expertise. I don't, um, I don't know if we quite meet that measure. Um, but uh, obviously you would have wonderful debates sitting with the rabbis of the third and fourth century. <laughs> um, I wanna share an, one idea that we, we did here in San Diego that maybe you wanna take to New York. Um, uh, it was a project I started a year ago on increasing fentanyl testing in hospitals. I, I, I imagine if you went to New York City, I don't know how many hospitals you have. We have 24 in San Diego County. Um, and the majority of them, when I started this project, did not include fentanyl in their urine drug tests. Um, only four out of all those hospitals do. And after an educational campaign, the majority um, include fentanyl in drug testing. And so that's the standard of care in the community. And now we have um, California uh, Bill SB 862 that would require all hospitals in California to include fentanyl in their drug testing if, if they get one. Um, so we're kind of proud of that. I hope it becomes a law and happy to share that um, um, with your Haida uh, if you're interested. Yeah, you know, I wonder, I would ask you this, Dr. Love, because um, fentanyl, I remember when fentanyl, I couldn't even pronounce the word. I mean, I know doctors could always pronounce it, but it was sort of, what's this stuff, fentanyl? Yeah. And it was like this a speck of fentanyl. And it went from being a speck of fentanyl in the drug supply to being the drug supply. What do we do if, um, what is your view with fentanyl test strips and other things? What if just fentanyl is everywhere? Is it necessary to test for fentanyl if it, if it, all, if it now is, if it goes from 1% of the drugs to 99% of the drugs have fentanyl in? Right. Um, and that's a very smart question. Um, so there's fentanyl test strips, and those are strips for testing the product. So I bought some cocaine or some pills, and I don't know if it got fentanyl in it and I'm not a regular fentanyl user, then I'm gonna learn how to use those fentanyl strips for that purpose, and because I don't want to have fentanyl. Some people are using the strips because they want the fentanyl, right? Now, because things yeah. came around, that became things. That's that's different than, um, than somebody comes into the hospital, they have altered mental status, we don't know what happened to them, um, and they don't feel right, something's wrong, and for whatever reason, the doctor gets a urine drug test. That right now includes the federal five, five drugs um, uh, identified as THC, opiates, amphetamines, PCP, um, and what I'm, I'm forgetting one of them. Um, but it doesn't include fentanyl, which is a, a synthetic opioid. So if we're going to test for drugs for whatever reason, why would you not spend the 75 cents and include fentanyl anytime you order a drug screen? Well... Yeah, I mean, and that's what you're saying echoes what I really come to believe is, and that a lot of this is the influence of our partners at CDC and our city and state health partners here in New York, is this is really a public health um, initiative that needs lots of partners at the table. But I see a lot of doctors who say, why don't we do this? I know the answer. We know the answer. If you want to reduce overdoses, we need to do this. We need to do that. As you know, you know, we need uh, all those steps were very clearly laid out. So I'm all for following your lead 
<laughs> and the other public health leaders on what we need to do and not have debates about it. It sounds, it, you know, it, it, we just have to make sure that we do it and we do it universally. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, just do it. Yeah. I, I think ER doctors say, well, I don't need that test to um, treat my patients. Like, you're right. You don't. I, I don't, I don't need to wait for data to save your life. I'm going to give you nalox. I'm going to put you in the ICU and I'm going to ask questions about what drug it was later. But that later does matter because it, it, it matters to that person. It motivates them to change. Um, it affects the community. Just like you said, that's contact tracing. That's part of the contact tracing is like letting other people. It's, it's a public health tool. It's not emergency. I don't need that data to save your life, but that data can change someone's life. Um, so yeah, so I'll send you, I'll send you the, our toolkit and you can, I you appreciate can send it. You. Yeah. And uh, do you have final advice for Amy? Your your uh, colleague at Haida in San Diego, Imperial County. I do, I do think that it's, that I guess if you fast forward, um, you know, you talk to a lot of our partnerships. You are, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing this in your work. You're seeing law enforcement who are the champions of public health interventions to reduce overdoses and save lives. And you're seeing public health leaders who are talking about the importance of law enforcement and that wasn't the conversation, whatever, I don't care what room we go to around the country, that wasn't how the conversation started. We're sort of in our silos and, and don't necessarily know each other's perspective or each other's um, area. But if we bring people together with a North Star, we start this conversation and all of a sudden these partnerships form and you wonder why we didn't do this a long time ago. And so I think it's just have faith that if you can, if you agree on, if, if people agree on the goal, if they agree on the North Star, They'll figure out a way to, to go to go forward. And that's what we've seen across the country, particularly in our partnership with CDC and law enforcement. I love that. I call it the three P's, the public health, public safety, and prevention, all working yeah. together to save lives. So I want to say thank you to Amy. Amy, I love you. Thank you for your question, your collaboration, your friendship, and I wish you and your family health and continued success with your work that you do with with Haida and Sean C. Parker, thank you for sharing your insights with me um, and your great listening skills uh, with our High Truth listeners. And I wish you the same um, health um, wishes of success and continued collaboration. And uh, definitely want to copy you on some of your initiatives that you're doing in New York. Well, we want to copy you. We want to copy all the great ideas around the country uh, because that's how we all we all get stronger. We get better. I really appreciate Dr. Love the opportunity to talk to you and I. Look forward to working together on the path forward. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.